When it comes to obedience, there are no perfect flying conditions, especially with regard to submission. The Apostle Peter calls all Christians to submit in the less than ideal circumstances of a pagan government, an unjust master, and an unbelieving husband. We love the idea of following Jesus until we get to the part where he refused to revile those who reviled him and suffered unjustly. Our American sensibilities balk against submission because we believe the true freedom lies in doing whatever you want rather than whatever you ought, which is defined by God. But all our culture does is what it wants. And look where that's left us. Submission to God actually frees us up to submit to men, even unjust men, because we know that in every circumstance, no matter how dire, there's a third party, God himself, who took on the form of a slave and humbled himself to the point of death. This is Understanding First Peter. The Apostle Peter instructs Christians in chapter 2, verse 11 to 3, 7, on how to live as witnesses for Christ in a hostile world through submission to unjust suffering and persecution. And they do this by applying the example of Christ to the relationships between citizens and states, slaves and masters, and husbands and wives. And in each of these areas, God acts as a stabilizing third party who gives agency and meaning to their submission. Listen to verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter reminds the church of their identity as sojourners and exiles, alienated from the world due to their refusal to submit to the passions of their flesh. So submission to God requires rebellion against our own sin. And this resistance to fleshly passion manifests itself as honorable conduct among the Gentiles. Holiness is a public witness that disarms the false accusations of lawlessness that was levied against the early church and is levied against the church today. Now, we can't nice people into the kingdom, but we can conduct ourselves in such a way that publicly outsiders notice our good deeds. They should see us as model citizens. And those good deeds, Peter seems to insist, causes outsiders to glorify God themselves on the day of visitation. And the day of visitation is a reference to the return of Christ. So this may be saying that though we may not see the fruit of our public witness, one day we might see those who we did not know had witnessed our good conduct glorifying God, that that our moral witness was actually a catalyst for them worshiping and praising the true God. And this theme of persuasion as an embodied reality, not just mere arguments, but a way of life, a conviction manifested in in the moral behavior of God's people, that theme of persuasion is is threaded throughout the rest of Peter's examples. And we're going to see that in this next section on submission to the state in verses 13 to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. So Peter applies this model of submission 
When he says to Christians that they must honor the emperor, in this case, the pagan Roman emperor, as supreme and his governors whom he sends as those who execute justice. But notice the hierarchy. Our submission to the emperor is for the Lord's sake, not the emperor's sake. Caesar is not divine, but rather just a human institution. In fact, literally the Greek speaks of him as a human creature. He is not divine. So Christ relativizes all authority in order that we might freely submit to them. So God is not anti-authority. The state receives authority to do justice, Romans 13, 4. The church receives authority to excommunicate the unrepentant, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And parents receive authority over their children, Ephesians 6, 1. But governors, pastors, and parents all receive their authority uh, as, as a delegation. It's, it's received from God as a stewardship to which they will be held to account. So God's authority actually frees us from the tyranny of other authorities by placing them in their proper order in order that we might serve them. So freedom is not this libertarian attitude common today that says that we have the right to do whatever we want, but rather it is the confidence and strength to serve the Lord submissively. This means we honor everyone regardless of their social status. We love the brotherhood of believers. We fear God. We live our whole lives before the face of God and we honor the emperor. The very emperor who, by the way, in a few short years is going to execute Peter. And the fact that Peter dies a martyr's death shows us that this submission is not absolute. Everything is for the Lord's sake. We cannot bow down, for example, to false gods. We cannot be forced to commit sin because that violates our ultimate submission to God. Everything is for the Lord's sake. But we should seek to live peaceably among men. We shouldn't try to start a revolution. We should try to respect the authorities, understanding that they are given authority by God. But that is not an absolute authority. It is not an authority that can bind our worship or bind our conscience with regard to things of heavenly matters. And when this happens, we ought to submit to the penalties of disobeying while entrusting ourselves to God. Jesus Christ, as the example, he never stopped speaking the truth. He never stopped doing the Father's will. But he also wasn't an insurrectionist. He wasn't trying to start a revolution. And yet, whenever him speaking the truth encountered the law or it encountered persecution, he endured the false accusations and the false uh, uh, penalties in order that he might proclaim the truth. So it's not an absolute submission, but rather in many ways, it's a submission to the consequences and the penalties imposed for doing the right thing. And we're going to see that really spelled out in this next section about masters and slaves, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was his seat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here we get to a controversial part where he speaks to slaves, and many of the early Christians were slaves. Many of the early Christians were women, people from the lowest casts of society because this message of the kingdom and the testimony of Jesus was so compelling to those who were powerless and weak in the world. 
And so slavery as an institution was something that pervaded all of human history and every culture. Unlike marriage, which was founded before the fall, slavery is a result of the fall. It is something that has infected all these cultures, and the Bible doesn't speak about a revolution against slavery, but rather regulation and, and trying to dismantle slavery from the inside. And you can see some of the elements of that in Philemon. But in the Greco-Roman world, slavery often meant a man or a woman paying off their debts with time of servitude toward a master. But it wasn't always that. And oftentimes it could be very brutal. And so Peter, as well as Paul, again, they're not advocating for the immediate abolishment of slavery, but rather its gradual uh, destruction as the gospel transforms interpersonal relationships. But Peter speaks very plainly. He says, look, slaves often suffer unjustly. But even such undignified work receives God's attention. This is a powerful thing that he's saying. He's saying that even though you have no rights, even though you are treated as property, God is with you. And not only that, but this form of a slave is actually the paradigm for the Christian life. Their submission even to unjust masters follows the pattern of Christ's own submission in his unjust death. He did not deserve his crucifixion, but he never threatened retaliation. When he was reviled, he did not revile in in return, but, but, but he entrusted himself to his father. And that's the model for us. That even though you have no rights, even though you are in this degrading, dehumanizing position, God himself knows what that's like. And if you will be faithful there, God will work through you. And ultimately, there's a master above your master that will hold him to account. This is a powerful thing for those who very rarely would ever get a chance to be free. That, that, that their lack of freedom is not their lack of true freedom, and it's not the end of their life. They can still have a meaningful life. They can still have meaning in their suffering because Christ knows what it's like to suffer like them. But how do you do this? Well, it's only by the power of Christ. And that's why Peter points out that, that the unjust suffering of the Son of God brought about salvation for all of us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which is an allusion to Deuteronomy. If you're hung on a tree, it is a sign that you are cursed. And so Christ was cursed for us. But why? That he might die to sin, or rather that he might cause us to die to sin, that we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. In other words, Christ submits in order to empower us to submit. And so in submitting to these uh, moments of injustice, in, in being this slave, this miraculous thing happens. You are manifesting the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ in your submission to unjust suffering. If you continue to do good, you are following in the footsteps of your Savior. Our very salvation comes as a product of Christ's unjust suffering. And if God purposed the unjust suffering of his beloved Son for good, then he will do the same for us as we trust him. So there's a powerful image here. If you are a slave, it is not the end of your life, that you can actually manifest the power of God and the glory of the kingdom because you were doing and walking as Christ did and as Christ walked. And this extends to marriage as well. That's the final little section here for husbands and wives in verses one to seven of chapter three. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, 
since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter's instructions on marriage, again, parallel the example of Christ. Just as Christ's submission to the Father accomplished salvation, so too the submission of a godly wife may bring about the conversion of her own husband, who does not obey the word. This is not a perfect guarantee, but it's rather a principle and a pattern. Therefore, a woman married to a non-Christian, one who does not believe uh, the, the word, ought not to divorce him but rather adorn herself with a gentle and quiet spirit. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. She must not use worldly means of influence with ostentatious displays of beauty or wealth, but rather humility and faith with respectable and pure conduct. And this humble faith follows the pattern of the women who hoped in God in the Old Testament, specifically Sarah, who's sort of the model of the wife and mother in the Old Testament. Sarah submitted to Abraham by calling him Lord and following him on a journey that seemed impossible. Yet her faith manifested itself in her following Abraham. Modern culture views this kind of submission as foolishness, but the Bible sees it as courage. It took courage for her to follow Abraham. You know, we're we're not going to be pagans anymore. We're going to go to some land. We're going to have a child. We're, We're too old for that. And she had to, in faith, trust the Lord by submitting to her husband in that. And if you go back to the reference of her calling Abraham Lord, it's it's almost like a passing comment. And it's almost as if this wasn't some dramatic moment but that she lived her whole life honoring her husband. That Lord was just sort of a, a term that she called him, kind of like saying sir or something like that. It, it, this, this kind of off-the-cuff moment reveals the natural posture of her heart. This is a powerful message. It's a very countercultural message, but it's not a passive enterprise. But Peter says that if you want to be like Sarah, what you need to do is you need to do good and don't fear anything that is fearful. That's a fascinating phrase right there. This is not passive. Again, Sarah has remarkable moral courage and emotional strength to accomplish what she did. You may not have your own children. You may not have a husband, but what is the call? You continue to do good and don't fear what is frightening. When other people are afraid of things, you don't be afraid. Devote yourself to righteousness and trust the Lord like Sarah, and you will be following in her footsteps. You will be a daughter of Sarah if you do that. And on the flip side, husbands must also exercise a kind of submission by living with their wives in an understanding way. Even though they're the head of the home, even though they possess authority, they must recognize that the woman is not a man. She is a weaker vessel. They don't possess the physical strength of men. They are placed in a vulnerable state that most men are not. Husbands must take this into account and understand his wife as someone unlike him, as someone different, as someone that he has to to understand and listen to as as a counselor, somebody that he has to take into account and recognize the difference between him and her. He might be more imposing. He might have greater strength, but he should not treat her as though she is a man, but must rather treat her by her nature as a woman. And the stakes for husbands and wives are pretty high. Remember, in every marriage, there's that third party. There's God himself. And so if a husband is mistreating his wife, God is saying, that's going to hinder your prayers. Why would I listen to you if you're not listening to me? Every husband must first submit to Christ, right? And I think the same goes the other way. If a wife is mistreating her husband, God is going to hinder her prayers. In other words, God's involved in our everyday lives. And so maybe if there are prayers that you have and you feel as though they're being hindered, it might be a time to take inventory of your marriage. Are you treating your wife well? Are you treating your husband well? All of these things matter to God because God is the third party and all of these 
relationships. So these relationships between citizen and state, slave and master, and husband and wife show us that Christianity is practical. We must live out what we believe in the ordinary circumstances and relationships of our lives, even if they're difficult. And none of this makes sense unless God is with us, unless he himself takes on the form of a slave and submits even to the shameful death on a cross. So to understand submission is to understand the example of Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And what happened to Christ? God exalted him because he humbly submitted to the trials and sufferings of life. And he will do the same to us. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's nothing more humble than submitting yourself, trusting God, knowing that in the end, he will vindicate you. And you have no idea the powerful things he can work through us as we follow in the footsteps of Christ, as we manifest his resurrecting power in the world through the counterintuitive submission and humble obedience under pressure.